So, let me make this clear. I still enjoy this episode, and there's still some good parts about it, but it's pretty clear that this episode was not written alongside the first one. I already talked about that briefly in the last episode. Um, but there's absolutely no denying this episode doesn't quite link up with the first one in terms of themes, in terms of uh, character arcs, and there's a few logical plot holes, uh, some of which are actually plot holes, some of which are hand waves. Um, yeah. Now, some of the pieces of this episode were actually written in advance, notably something to go do with Chakotay, which is pretty much the first thing I'm going to talk about, and uh, the entire situation with Kess questioning uh, Janeway's orders, which of course was turned into Seven. Real quick thing, though, I just feel like pointing this out right off the bat. Um, the time ship is immune to time, but it moves through time, because it's not a time travel ship. It simply is separated from the continuum, and yet they still feel the passage of time, even though they don't age, and they still need to eat and drink and sleep. In other words, well, you, you kind of get where this is going. It's, <laughs> it's just one of those things, and again, this is not a plot hole, this is a hand wave, they're just like, just go with it. But it is interesting how inconsistent they are on certain aspects. I'll be talking about that more towards the end here. Let's talk about the Chakotay thing. One of the interesting things about Chakotay as a character is probably the most definitive uh, things that define his character are his commandability, his uh, kindness, caring, uh, empathy, and his belief in... Uh, not, not the tribal thing, I mean his belief in good, his belief in doing good, helping, taking care of others, his desire to, to help. To be altruistic. That's one of the reasons why Chakotay, that's probably the reason why Chakotay abandoned an extremely promising Starfleet career on the command track, I feel like pointing out, in order to go and fight in the Maquis. That was something he decided to do on strong moral and ethical grounds, right? I mention that because in this episode, as it's presented, Chakotay kind of bobs and weaves through what might look like a character arc if you removed about half of it. And that's because that's exactly what they did. The original intention for Chakotay was to have him be kind of a parallel to Anorax for different reasons. Anorax was driven mad into Megalomania and, and Paranoia, I'll be talking about that later, um, with regards to, you know, time has moods, I want my wife back, etc. Okay. Chakotay, on the other hand, has a great desire to help. Help the Kranem, help restore this people, help fix all this mess, help his people get home, etc. The thing that most people tend to forget, and very, very few pieces of fiction really get correctly, is the path to darkness does not go from, I want to help, to die, die, die. The path to darkness could be best described by the English alphabet, in my opinion. I, I, and again, that, that's kind of a, it doesn't necessarily have to be 26 steps, but the point is 26 steps is a quite, a, quite a few, right? When you have hit Z, you have basically become a bad guy. But when you're at A, you just want to help people, or you care about people, or whatever it is that your start is. Now the fascinating thing about this, and this is the boiling pot theory in a nutshell, A to B is not a big step. In fact, it probably looks perfectly logical and very reasonable at the time. When you make that step from A, from the perspective of A, to B, it's just a little tiny little tidbit. When you make the step from M to N, it's just one little nudge. And when you finally make that final step into Z, it's natural at that point in time. The point of a proper fall to darkness, and this is a very Star Wars kind of thing, the fall to the dark side, is that it doesn't just happen most of the time. 
uh, to use an example that I'll be talking about soon, Bastila Shan's fall to the dark side didn't actually happen when Malik tortured her. I'll be talking about this, like I said later. That was more like the XYZ part of her path. She'd already gone through the rest of the alphabet already. And when that kind of path is done properly, that's exactly what it should be, right? So Chakotay's arc was originally going to be starting off at A, sympathetic, empathetic, caring, altruistic, etc., and end at Z, willing to genocide entire races in order to get his goals met. And again, if you're paying attention, that's the exact same path Anorax went through. Now granted, this man's morality and ethics are debatable since we only seen him literally once ever prior to this when he is designing a weapon. And yet, there is a strong implication that there was a decent man under there, if for no other reason than he continuously feels guilt for what he does. He may rationalize it. He may still do it. That makes him an evil person. But he still has the subtlety and nuance of him to care about what he's doing, to feel regret and remorse for it. The scene where he talks about how his ship has become a museum and, and his line... Um, where he says, because of me, entire races and civilizations wiped out because of me. He delivers that line perfectly. You can tell he hates himself for what he's done. He is resigned to it, but he is also that also makes him more stubborn. It's, uh, that's another uh, psychological concept. I forget the name. It's basically the idea of refusing to accept sunk costs. For those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, in accounting, there is the idea of sunk costs. In other words, we have expended this much time, effort, resources, money, and we've gotten nothing out of it, at a certain point, those need to be chopped off, considered sunk costs, and just absorbed into, into the budget. That's spent. If we keep spending more money on it, that's just that number is just going to grow. But it is human psychology to not want to accept that. Instead, the human mind looks at that and says, well, I've already spent all this. If I were to stop now, it'd be a waste. I have to keep going. This is true in so many aspects of society. A lot of marketing campaigns are aimed at trying to target people with the concept of sunk cost and the refusal to accept that. So that's exactly where Anorax is. He has done so many horrible things that he regrets that he can't stop now. He has to keep going. And that's exactly the path Chakotay was going to be on the path to. In actual fact, the original uh, script idea, I, I speculate based on what I know about the structure of it, was that Chakotay was never actually going to turn around. He would actually become an obstacle for Tom in, in, in sabotaging the ship, and then would be destroyed on board, along with everyone else, when it self-destructs. I don't want to talk about that part just yet, though. I'm saving that for the end, appropriately enough. It's just a shame, because the other half of the Chakotay arc has to do with distance. Distance cruelty is what I like to call that. I know this sounds horrible, but bear with me. If you walk up to someone and beat them to death with your bare hands, ah, I, I can't even say that without cringing. That is a horrible thought. It is atrocious and despicable and disgusting, and most people, the vast majority of people, couldn't actually bring themselves to do that, even if they kind of had to. This has actually been shown in human history. There are instances where soldiers and individuals who are in a war effort cannot do something horrible because they can't bring themselves to do it, even though their survival depends on it, the survival of their people. Because it's just that contrary, if you'll forgive me for being blunt, to what we as humans are as far as civilized creatures. That term civilization may be bandied around in cynicism and pessimism, but what it ultimately means is the things that make us people rather than animals. That's, a, that's another thread that's an undercurrent throughout the, the second part of this episode. So, 
The idea here is when you distance yourself from something, it's easier to do. When you don't see who you're shooting, when you don't see who you're killing, when you're not you're not you're not visually perspective having of <laughs> sentence construction, when you don't actually see the lives you're destroying, it's easier. And then you take another step from that. When you're not even the one pressing the button. When you're just giving an order. It's distance. And it's much easier to do. The the excellent fan movie, Star Trek of Gods and Men had a whole scene where uh, the captain, who had the memories of both timelines, was talking about how it it was so easy, because it was just an order. I didn't even have to see them. Just, just fire the torpedo and it was done. And yet on his own expression, you could see he's horrified by how easy it was to do that because of distance. So that was the other half of the Chakotay arc. They're completely segregate from everything. They don't have to think about anything that they're doing, really. Not really. Remember that in this episode, Chakotay and Tom witnessed the genocide of a race. And Chakotay goes back to his figures after that. Now, again, if they'd actually f fulfilled his plot arc, that would have made much more sense in, in, in hindsight, even though he did confront Anorax about that. But um, The other thing I want to talk about uh, with regards to Anorax, I'll go ahead and jump into this real quick. He is still an awesome character. Great job. Uh, by Kurtwood Smith and in, in portraying him, he really does nail the head right, right on the hammer, uh, hit the hit the nail on the head, right, right, right on. It's a wonderful blend of charismatic, interesting, genuine, sympathetic, regret, guilt, insane, megalomaniacal, and paranoid. And that's the thing; his portrayal is actually ultimately left up to the interpretation of the audience but when asked Kurtwood Smith himself stated that he was playing the character as if he was paranoid now I've talked about this before um, in brief when I uh, I want to stress that I mean this literally a lot of people say oh yeah I'm totally paranoid no you're not uh, I don't mind you using that phrase I'm not trying to grammar Nazi or rules Nazi you but I'm making the distinction that I mean paranoid in a literal medical sense in other words I genuinely think that there is a cabal of curtains that are trying to hurt me and kill me, and I am irrational as a result of that. It is a medical condition, an imbalance, a chemical problem in your brain, right? He portrayed his character as a genuinely, literally paranoid individual who actually genuinely thought time was after him. Time was his enemy, and that was his obstacle, and that's why he couldn't let go of his mission. It's interesting to think of because I mentioned earlier about how he was wrong and that his mission would never be possible to complete given the nature of his weapon and whatnot. Having seen his performance in episode two, I, I kind of already knew this was coming because again, I've seen these episodes before, but really analyzing it, it's very clear that that was done on purpose. That it was very clear to everyone involved except Anorax that this mission would never actually succeed. And Anorax could not let himself go of that because of what I talked about earlier. I mean, look at how much has been spent. Look at how much has been lost. 200 years they've spent doing this. I can't just stop now. In a way, that's what should have happened with Cypher over in Final Fantasy VIII to really diverge here. Uh, but I digress. Janeway's descent in this episode is interesting because she kind of doesn't. The original intent was for Janeway to go through a, a path to darkness of her own, and yet as Mulgrew was portraying the lines, they realized Mulgrew herself was portraying herself in, in a normal fashion. Mulgrew is actually not that good at playing villains, all things considered. Uh, even um, Flemeth over in Dragon Age ultimately has a great deal of sympathy and humanity to her, despite her seemingly villainous perspective. So 
yeah, Mulgrew's just not that good at that. And they saw that, and they kind of shifted the script a little so that instead of descending into darkness or madness, she basically descends into an animal state and then recovers from that. Now, before I really go further into the Janeway thing and the animals thing, I want to kind of set this up because the episode itself does a great setup of this. Why is it that a survival uh, situation in fiction is so interesting? Well, it really boils down to the post-apocalypse uh, post apocalypse scenario. What happened in the previous episode was the apocalypse, the big disaster, the climax, and then boom, world ends, a.k.a. Voyager ends. What happens here in part two is then the post-apocalypse. Uh, we now have to deal with ha lacking everything we had before and struggling to go on in that situation. I think... It's hard to explain why survival situations like this, survival horror, survival uh, combat, survival RPGs, you know, whatever, uh, are so interesting and engaging to the audience, but I think it's because of the fact that it really shines a highlight on what we can do as a species. There's usually tales of hope and, and heroism and humanity in there, good and bad, and it also helps us to feel better about what we do have, knowing that we could be lacking it in worse circumstances. That's just my opinion. I have no idea. Uh, I feel free to tell me if anybody out there likes the kind of post-apocalyptic survival story. Feel free to tell me why you like it. I'd love to hear about that. But the most interesting thing about the post-apocalyptic society is the first thing that goes out the window is civilization. Because survival becomes more important than living. And I even agree with that on a temporary thought, right? I do. It's understandable. It's logical. And yet the thing that is most interesting is that... Well, there's a scene later in here. I'm going to put it in the post-credits thing here. Uh, where Janeway finds the watch that Chakotay refused to recycle. Now, Janeway's statement in the first episode was correct. Logically, fundamentally, from a survivalist perspective, that watch should have been recycled. It is hard to, un to miss the fact, however, that that watch represented something. Janeway herself gives a beautiful speech to Tuvok at the end of this episode. I'm jumping ahead of my notes, as I always do, about how the ship is more than just a ship. It's our home. It's our family. I, I owe it. You know, it needs one more person with it, that kind of a thing. Knowing she's going to die on the ship. Knowing that. Tuvok knows that. Everyone knows that. There's no surviving at this point in time. And yet she does so because she gave it significance. And that's the truly ironic and beautiful part about living the only people who can define what living is are the individuals. What living is for me is not what it is for you. We assign significance to what is significant to us. You understand? So her taking up that watch showed that she understood, and it meant something to her, that Chakotay bothered to do that for her. Something irrelevant, something excess, something not required. Just like she was telling uh, uh, Seven about art back in The Raven. There is no point in art from a survival perspective. And yet it is so fundamentally necessary for a civilization because of how much it means to the people who decide it means something to them. That is how Janeway's arc goes through this particular episode. She becomes, for all intents and purposes, an animal. There is a scene where she actually threatens the doctor. Now she apologizes for that, and that was good. If they hadn't put that apology in, I would be pissed. But she recognized in that scene that she had simply descended way too far. She herself puts it as, I've been operating on instincts. 
for too long, and you know, I didn't think before I spoke. Thinking before we speak is also a nice defining trait of civilization and living, by the way. So you get where I'm coming around with this. And then she finds that watch, and that's the turnaround for her, and she starts to say, okay, we're going to go ahead and try and make this work, and it's going to cost, it's going to hurt, but I'm still going to do it. That's a nice little character arc, but also, ironically, the beginning of her character arc. Yes, finally, after three-plus years of Voyager, Janeway's finally getting a character arc. Now, I'm only going to mention it briefly here, because I believe this is where it starts, even though these events never happen. However, I think it still counts, because effectively, this is still the point in time at which Janeway was when this began to happen and therefore is significant because if it had happened, it would have still been valid. The fact that it didn't happen doesn't invalidate that. There's nothing changed to, to prevent that, if you understand what I mean. So, beginning of her arc, I'll talk about that more later. I'm just going to leave that hanging. Um, the couple other things. I just want to go down a few lists. Just little tidbits. Little tidbits this episode did really well. First of all, Tom hits the nail completely on the head with Anorax, in my opinion. Anorax is someone who would rather just get his job done and get it over with. He might regret it. He might uh, you know, not care for it. Remember, this is a man who wiped out an entire species because of a hunch. He regretted doing it. He even showed regret before, uh, during, and after it. But he still did it. If he could have found Voyager and simply wiped them out, he would have already done so. And Tom just completely calls him out on that, because he's trying to portray himself as more sympathetic, probably to help convince them, but it's also worth noting, I think, because of his own shame at that situation. There's a wonderful line he has, which it pretty much highlights what I was talking about in the last episode. You almost became artifacts as yourselves. Remember, we don't see any other members of any other species walking around this massive ship. Now, of course we don't. I mean, you know, there's no real reason for it. And yet, wouldn't it be horrifying in its own way if the reason for that is because those members of other species are not alive anymore? They're simply preserved to maintain a piece of their history, like in a museum. Yeah. Um, Janeway has another great line uh, that, again, there's a lot of little touches in this episode, which is great. It's such a good episode right up until the end, um, where she says, uh, it's been a few days since we've been in the same room together, so let's go to sit, sit rep together. Obviously, that serves good purpose for the show. It gets across some interesting and good exposition on just how badly things are in the post-apocalyptic uh, situation of Voyager. But it also really highlights how different their lives have become. This is a ship that's that you could walk from one end to the other in a couple of minutes, and that's without... Uh, the use of turbo lifts, you know, the Jeffries tube pipe, and there, done. You know, I couldn't even possibly think of that taking an hour at most, and that's if you took a really circumventious route. It's a small ship. People interact with each other on that ship daily, multiple times a day, and it's and, and this is true in real life too. Now, granted, Voyager is actually pretty big by some real life uh, ship standards, but you basically see everyone on that ship pretty regularly. And yet, the idea that they could spend days, plural, without actually interacting with each other, all being in the same room together, is almost unheard of in, in, in Star Trek in general, but in, in science fiction in that concept in general. That's very unlikely, very indicative of just how bad things have gotten, that you would spend literally days in your chunk of the ship not actually interacting with anyone else. It also kind of makes one line, one throwaway line, really horrifying. The doctor mentions that there are, uh, I forget the number, but he says there's 12 people on the ship, and then they cut to that scene, and there are not 12 people there. Now, you could argue that those people are just elseways on the ship doing whatever, but 
given the shape of Voyager, would it not be quietly horrifying to think that one of those people was in their quiet section working and something went wrong and they were ejected into space or crushed or, uh, hell, worse, didn't actually die but is simply trapped there and because of the dilapidated state of the ship, they don't really have any way to contact anyone else, and so they're just stuck there until the off chance happens that someone else has time to come look for them, which they probably don't. As your pleasant thought for the day. Um, there's a line uh, dialogue back and forth between Tuvok and Seven, which, again, was obviously made for Kess. The captain is always right, even when you know her logic is flawed, perhaps. Now, that line has a lot of meaning and, and quiet mention into it, and obviously there's some significance to it with regards to Seven's character growth and Tuvok's perspective on the matter and the whole living versus survival thing I mentioned earlier, but it most emphasizes Janeway's arc. Uh, remember, at that point in time, she's still in her descent towards animalism, so it makes perfect sense that she would be questioned on that matter as a result of that. It is ultimately ironic, I feel, that once she becomes back to being more human, she is then being completely illogical. But at that point in time, Tuvac notes his objections and then accepts it immediately and willingly rather than being bothered by the situation like he was before. Interesting thought. I love how Anoraks make, they make a big show of Anoraks having and seeing and understanding the consequences of destroying a comet. Now his statement makes perfect sense in its own right. And again, speaks to what I was talking about back in the first episode. You make a dinky little change and it's going to affect a whole lot of stuff. Just destroying that comet wiped out thousands of species. Yet this is a man who regularly wipes out colonies and entire species. Which, on the scale of, of how much stuff it affects, is like getting upset because you moved a molecule of dust off of my desk and now the imbalance of the desk is off, versus taking a bulldozer to the entire building. <laughs> You're affecting a little bit more here, ma'am. But I'm not really trying to bash the episode. Rather, I think it is still in character, as horrible as that sounds. Because it's not used... He, he, he mentions that, and he points that out, and again, it's totally accurate. But he mentions it in order to exposit on his own character motivations. How he made Chakotay's mistake once. And that's why they're so careful with their calculations, and they're so careful with their thoughts now. He's still wrong. He's still evil. But it shows that he has grown and learned from that initial mistake... And it's a great way to, to emphasize, again, that under, underpinning uh, aspect of his character. Another thing I like about the, uh, the, 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 the survival mentality uh, is small things become big. There's two big examples of this in this episode. One is the fact that bits of the nebula leak into the ship. Now, I want to stress this again. You're on a spaceship, and bits of what's outside of the ship have gotten inside the ship. Do you see a problem here? <laughs> but that's not the big one. The one I love is the small micrometeoroids. We're talking little balls of dust that are like this big. However, as anyone will tell you, with even the, a passing understanding of physics or astrophysics, size doesn't quite matter when velocity uh, is, is in play here, especially in an effectively frictionless environment. So that can be really, really damaging to something. This has actually been a problem for real-life space exploration. And again... And again, this is something um, mundane, just like the going to warp thing was. This is something so common to space travel that they have a separate deflector shield array whose only purpose is preventing normal crap from affecting the ship. 
it's so mo modern and it's so everyday that I don't think I, I can't actually think of another ep episode where it's actually come up prior to now, other than it being mentioned before. Like navigational shields, that's what they call it. Navigational shields. They've mentioned those before and how incredibly you know weak and pathetic they are and how normal everyday life they're. It'd be like calling electricity, you know, calling calling attention to electricity being a big deal. But that's a great analogy, isn't it? Because in a post-apocalypse, something that is so common and ordinary, like having access to electricity, suddenly becomes a huge problem, doesn't it? Just like those micrometeoroids. So that was a great scene. Love that. Um, then Janeway jumps into a fire. Contrary to popular belief, uh, you might think I'm going to bash that scene, but no, that's a great scene. Uh, really shows how desperate she's become. Really shows how desperate the situation has become, because it's pretty likely Voyager would have been completely screwed if she hadn't done that. Speaking as someone who has actually been burned by a fire before, and still has a couple of scars from that. One right here, and one I'm not going to show you. Um, well, I guess I'm not going to show you this one either, because it's under the skin. Or, under the skin, wow, under the shirt. But the point is, um, it's right here if you're wondering. The point is, that hurts. And this was pretty mild compared to jumping through flames. And when, when the doctor actually says six, over 60% of your body was burned with third-degree burns, I actually felt the whole, my whole body just go, Ooh, that's bad. <laughs> I mean, that's really bad. Ouch, you know? Ugh. Um. Let's go ahead and scroll to the next page. I only have a few more notes, I swear. Tuvok hugs Janeway. I, I just have that note here, but it's underlined because I, I cannot underemphasize this scene. It's a great scene where Janeway is talking about the significance of the ship to her and explaining her reasons, motivations, and showing that she has completed her arc back to human. She hugs Tuvok, and, and I, I'm just sitting there watching, and I'm like, oh god, please hug her back, because I know what that means. Again, significance is only significant because we give it significance, right? So understand this. Vulcans do not like touch. They hate it, in fact. They are incredibly private individuals, and they really... If, if a Vulcan is willing to physically interact with your skin, it is a sign of tremendous respect and care, or a desperate situation. One of the two. And this has been pretty consistent throughout the course of the entire franchise, with some notable exceptions in Enterprise, where they just forgot what Vulcans were for about three seasons. So... I'm not even kidding. That really is basically what happened. Season 4 actually was about fixing that and explaining why they weren't being Vulcans for three seasons. At least part of the story. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Point is, there's another reason for that. Tactile touch is also uh, is one of the ways that Vulcans uh, activate their empathic and telepathic abilities. It's one of the reasons why this is such a big deal and, and, and is only used relatively rarely, all things considered. Because it is an incredibly personal and deep thing for a Vulcan to do, right? Except an Enterprise. So... Her, him being willing to hug her, to embrace her back in a very human display, speaks volumes about just how much he respects and cares about her and understands what she's going through. And his own quiet Vulcan way of showing his grief at the knowledge that he is about to lose his friend. That was a great scene. Now I want to point out an irony here. The solution to me uh, occurred to me when I very first saw this episode, way back when it was first coming out, as of the first episode. Wipe, wipe the ship out. Cause a temporal incursion on the ship. Shoot the ship with the weapon. 
That would remove the ship from existence, which would revert everything, just like that. That, that was immediate. It occurred to me immediately. And yet, at no point in time does anyone seem to think that that's the solution, right up until the climax of this episode, when Janeway says, everyone lower your shields so we're all affected by the time being reset. It's the first time anyone acknowledges that as an option, actually. And um, I just found that kind of interesting in its own right. Now, another little tidbit, there's a point in which their, their time field destabilizes and they start reverting to normal space-time. Remember, just a few minutes after that, the lock of hair is, is knocked over his desk, and the glass which is keeping it in temporal stasis vanishes. I'm not even going to talk about why it needs to be in temporal stasis on a ship that's in temporal stasis, whatever. Point being that it gets knocked off and it immediately vanishes. Wouldn't it be interesting if that's what would have happened to the ship as soon as that field was knocked off? Maybe not vanishing, but like if time literally played catch-up with them. If two centuries of wear and tear and eat and, and decay and all that just hit them, just like that. A very uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade kind of a thing, if you will, except a little less macabre. Just, so, just some food for thought. One other last uh, point before I get to the big point. The battle scene at the end was great. Foundation Imaging really, really has outdone themselves in all of Season 4. I have nothing but praise for them. Um, it's also really cool because the structure of the battle is something that is very rare in Star Trek. Most Star Trek battles are one of two types. One side is complete, hopelessly outmatched from, by the other side. They could be good guys or bad guys, but it works both ways. Sometimes the good guys are the one who hopelessly outmatch the bad guys. Uh, that was true in TNG several times, for example. But the point is completely lopsided battle or two massive powers fighting each other. Usually that's a ship to ship. Only on DS9 did this really extend to fleets, but almost every battle across all of Star Trek really fits into these two categories. The, the, the exceptions are exactly that, exceptions. I like this exception because in this case, what we had is the Star Trek II effect, Wrath of Khan. We had one ship which was battered, broken, and weak versus another ship which was battered, broken, and weak two wounded defenders trying to just barely survive and any damage one does to the other is catastrophic. Any hit that either side lands is a big hit. That's exactly what this battle felt like. Not quite to the level of quality or the tension, the, the submarine effect of the, uh, of the Star Trek II battle, of course, but still engaging because it was weak ships plus Voyager, which is barely functional and also is being manned by one person, versus a ship that isn't used to actually fighting without using its time weapon. And so, and, and has pathetically weak shields and, and hull and all that stuff, because it wasn't really designed to be a battleship. So it was weak versus weak and wounded, and I liked that. It was really good. Alright. One last positive thing to say about this episode. The coda with Anorex was great. I really liked that. Granted, there were a couple of puns in there, whatever. I, I'm, I'm admittedly more tolerant of puns than most people I know. I mean, I love Dragon Quest, for God's sakes. But Anorex's uh, coda with his wife and her saying, it's a beautiful day, come spend it with me, and him agreeing to, that also, not only does that kind of make my point er earlier about how erasing the, the, like, I talked about erasing San Diego. You can't cheat and then rebuild San Diego because it was never made. No attempt would ever be made to make San Diego. And it's the same case here. The obvious implication is that he will never make the time shift. So there's, it's not that time was reset, it's that time was altered so the time ship will never be, right? So he goes off and lives happily with his family. Which, actually, I really like that, and I really love the portrayal of it. And so, shrug. That's good. Awesome. I don't need my notes for the rest of this because... 
the ending. Those of you who don't know, uh, the fan base of Star Trek in about this era, when uh, Deep Space Nine and uh, the end of TNG and the beginning of Voyager was was probably at its strongest ever across the, that that little band of period, end of TNG to the to about midway through Voyager, you know when DS Nine ended, really strong fan base and. When I say that, I, I don't mean like it's it's weak now. Of course, we've kind of been without Star Trek for a while. But what I mean is, it was very active. People were sending letters into Paramount, and there was tons of interviews happening constantly with people who were working on the show, and there was conventions happening more or less constantly in certain parts of the world. You know, It was very active. There was a ton of interaction as well between the creators and the fan base. Now, of course, this is this is the, the, the digital instant information age, so that would be true now. If Star Trek is going right now, which it's not. Um, but the point is, when feedback happened, it was usually pronounced. And oh, was it pronounced on this episode. My favorite example of this is the gentleman who wrote this episode. Uh, was opening fan mail. And one of the letters said, it's a great episode, and I love it, and Anorox is amazing, and I'm never watching another episode of your show because that ending is trite garbage. People were so angry about this episode's ending. And it's very easy to see why. Remember I was talking back in the first part about the Elseworlds concept. You can do whatever you want because it doesn't matter. You can use that to good effect, to do really interesting, engaging storylines. But at the end of the day, in a television format, if you're doing an Elseworlds, then at the end it doesn't matter. That's why the it was all a dream trope and cliche is so universally hated. Because it was all a dream means none of it meant a damn thing. It, it was all completely irrelevant. It might be entertaining in its own right, but at the end of the day, it doesn't have any consequence at all in-universe. I mean, this isn't even a case of the show not having continuity or anything. This is a case of the show actively saying, that doesn't matter. It is, it irrelevizes everything. It, any emotional impact, any feeling, any thought, any engaging aspect of it, any character development, is all flushed out the window. Yes, flushed out the window. I have a weird to toilet. What do you want from me? So, it's easy to see why that was so upsetting to people, because Year of Hell hit the reset button so hard in a way that Voyager hasn't done since season one, I think. I, I, actually, I'm not going to say that. But the point is, the last time I remember being this pissed off at the reset button actively being hit in episode was back in season one with that stupid uh, you know, Prime Directive episode whose name I can't even remember. I hated that episode. Um, and it pisses me off when they do that kind of crap. And this is a two-parter that they just flushed out the window and up the chimney. They flushed it out the chimney, too. Really weird toilet system. Um... Now here's the thing. The problem with this is they almost had no choice. And now I say almost. They did have a choice. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. But from a creator's perspective, the reset button is not just a lazy form of writing. Really, it isn't. It is a way to maintain a status quo. Now, so I've, always, I've often spoken against maintaining the status quo. And that's because I believe it is adhered to too much. But I also believe that maintaining... Uh, trying to constantly alter the status quo or trying to alter it too much is also a bad thing. As usual, I, I tend to preach a degree of moderation. So, I get, I get the idea of trying to get close back to, at the very least, close to what you started at so the series can continue. But that's the almost part. 
They didn't have to hit the reset button so hard and so fast that none of it ever happened. They could have done dozens of different ways. I have heard tons and tons of fan come up with ideas how to fix this. And by the way, as always, I, I open the doors to you guys. Please share with me how you would have ended this episode. Please. Now, I'm going to share with you two ideas, uh, one of which I've heard spoken a lot about and uh, is also mentioned by Sci-Fi Debris, I believe. Um, and I'm not aping him, it's just uh, he and I both had the same idea on this one. And another idea that I've heard uh, circulated several times as well. I'll talk about the other idea first. Why not have it be that the reset button is it, and everything is set back to default except for the fact that there's certain aspects of the ship which survived it. Certain aspects of the ship were maintained because of how damaged Voyager was and the fact that there's temporally messed up crap here and temporally messed up crap here. And so Voyager gets back, except all of a sudden they encounter this debris of the other Voyager. And they're like, oh my god, and one of those things happens to contain, you know, computer chips, data logs, etc. And they, and in fact, I think it would be best if it was literally logs, log entries of what, what they went through over the course of that year. And just a, a chilling and quiet reminder of all the people who would have died and all the people, all the horrors they went through. And the understanding that we don't have to go through that, thank God. You know, a level of appreciation for what has been avoided and a recognition of the sacrifice that Janeway and all the people who died made, you know? And because that's one of the things that is most aggravating, aggravating to me personally. You make this great, wonderful sacrifice, and then no one ever remembers it. Now that can, okay, I'm saying that wrong because that can be some, the spaces of some really good storytelling. See Final Fantasy Tactics for an example of that. But what I mean by that is I hate timeline time travel stories where it's nobody remembers that time was altered at the end of it. Something about that just bugs me, and I think it has to do with my own personal desire to not forget. I hate the loss of memory. I always have. Uh, there's only a few very rare points in my life where I myself have lost memory, and it's a terrifying, horrible feeling to me. I don't know if everyone else shares this thought. So the idea of all those events just being flushed out the window and gone bugs me. The idea of then having them get, retrieve those logs and remember that, I like that. Uh, the later episode uh, with, with Harry Kim, one of my favorite episodes of all time, uh, does something exactly like what I'm talking about. They, he, Harry, you know, is like, oh, I failed, but then he gets the, the, the message from himself, from the other timeline, from the future, saying, you know, here's what happened. And that way it does have significance. That way it does carry forward. There's something of it that keeps going. It's not completely erased, right? Second idea. This is also related to Harry Kim. This is the one that Sci-Fi Debris mentioned, and I've heard this circulated a lot uh, in, like, about five or six different formats. The basic concept is the Harry Kim from, uh, from the Year of Hell timeline gets shunted back into the previous timeline. There's a lot of ways to execute this, uh, time travel being the most obvious one of him actually going back, or him being in a shielded section of the ship, like I mentioned the log entries are, or maybe he happened to be at a unique point on the ship in order to beam himself. You know what? There's lots of ways you can accomplish this, but the point is... Harry Kim, for some reason, uh, the other way, I've heard this other way, it just occurred to me, sorry, um, of having Harry's memories go back, even though his body doesn't, uh, kind of similar to what happened to Kess back in Displaced. So, Harry is just walking on the bridge, picture it from his perspective, he's walking on the bridge at the beginning slash ending of the episode, nothing's happened, and all of a sudden, a year's worth of memories and experiences just flood into him. Picture that scene. Time ship explodes, and Harry's like, ah, and then it cuts to the... Captain's log, we're going through this thing, and we're talking to the Krenum, and everything's great. And then um, you see Harry just walking down a corridor towards the bridge, and he just falls over. He is so overwhelmed by a year's worth of hell. 
of all those memories and all those things happening to him and all those things flooding into him and he's just like oh my god and have this new Harry be have this be the beginning of another character arc for him because that is an incredibly traumatic horrible experience to go through have this be a fundamental change to his character have this be a way to I don't know use Harry Kim in a way that's actually worth a damn god damn it it's not that hard people use the character he's right there um and use him to, to grow and nourish and to interact with the other characters more, make him uh, much darker, yes, but not necessarily for the sake of, you know, it doesn't have to turn into Batman. You could just turn him into someone who is suffering, who is trying to recover from all those events we witnessed and he experienced. And again, carrying that forward. He could give them knowledge and understanding of what happened. Not, I'm not, not necessarily talking about cheat codes, but I mean like all the things he witnessed, all the things experienced. Again, I could see this wonderful scene at the end, uh, right before the coda with uh, Anorax, where he is holding a memorial for people who are still alive because they gave their lives in his timeline. And see him insisting upon that. And seeing his face scarred. Not physically, but just... I've seen Garrett Wong play that kind of character before. I think he could pull it off. Wouldn't that have been awesome? As always, leave me your thoughts and whatnot in the comments. I, I look forward to reading it. Either way, I'll see you guys next time. Unless it never happened. Disobeyed orders. Captain? Chakota gave this to me five months ago. A birthday gift. I ordered him to... What do you think? Handsome. Come on.